Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 8th of October with me, Ian Welsh. A few days ago, I caught up with Stephen Donofrio, Director of the Forest Trends Ecosystem Marketplace Project. Stephen and his colleagues have just released a new report, State of the Voluntary Carbon Markets 2021, the headline from which is that the voluntary market is set to top $1 billion this year, rising steeply on 2020 levels. We talked about some more of the report's conclusions and what has to happen if the markets are going to reach the sort of scale that many commentators say is necessary if the global economy is going to decarbonise. That's to come. First, some sustainability news. Mars has announced its route to full value chain net zero by 2050 and alignment with the Paris Agreement's 1.5 Celsius pathway. This covers all scope 3 emissions, including from all agricultural suppliers and consumers' use of the company's brands. Deforestation and ecosystem conversion will be eliminated, requiring some supply chain redesign, and the business will transition to 100% clean energy. Pay for top executives will be, Mars says, strongly linked to climate action. Interestingly, the more than 20,000 suppliers in the Mars value chain will be challenged to set their own commitments. The company says that it is prioritising collaboration and partnership with suppliers. Initiatives include the new supplier leadership on climate transition, which is designed to encourage Mars suppliers to calculate their own footprints and to set science-based targets. Not to be outdone, global fast food brand McDonald's is another big business to declare 2050 net zero targets, including its supply chains. The company will be working with the Science-Based Targets Initiative and updating environmental targets that had previously been aligned with the Paris Agreement's 2 Celsius pathway. McDonald's is set to cut all emissions across scopes 1, 2 and 3 by a third this decade on the way to net zero by mid-century. The UK and Ireland arm of McDonald's has pushed things further with a more ambitious 2040 net zero target. Operations at currently operating restaurants and other facilities will be net zero by 2030. In supply chains, the company will develop a new sustainability scorecard by 2023. Regenerative agricultural practices in beef supply chains and developing further the range of non-meat options are part of the plan. Also joining the party and tightening its approach is UK retailer Marks & Spencer, announcing some of the detail behind its refreshed Plan A commitments. The big news is, guess what? Net zero across supply chains scope 3 emissions by 2040. Given supply chains account for 97% of the company's footprint, this will require a transformation of the business, CEO Steve Rowe has admitted. M&S has been praised for an approach that has been industry-leading since the pioneering Plan A programme was established in 2007. Already carbon neutral in its operations since 2017, palm oil sourced is 100% certified and 99% of wood from sustainable sources. Some estimates put the cash savings that Plan A has made for Marks & Spencer to be over £750 million. The palm oil sector is always in the spotlight and while there has been some undoubted success from the big suppliers aligning with the no deforestation goals of their big brand customers, there's a long tail for sure and a need to think across commodities. New research from NGO Aid Environment highlights that while the large refiners for palm oil in Indonesia have reduced deforestation rates, partly through the leverage over growers, there are some plantation developers also in the industrial timber sector with significant deforestation risks, supplying palm oil to buyers that have policies pledged to be no deforestation clearing of peat or exploitation of local communities known as an NDPE. In other words, traders who claim to implement NDPE policies for palm oil are still exposed to deforestation, and forests in Indonesia and Malaysia continue to be cleared. Is cross-commodity risk the next big thing? 
Finally this week, a new piece of research from Accenture and the World Economic Forum, Shaping the Sustainable Organisation, says that companies with what it calls strong sustainability DNA are more likely to deliver financial value and a lasting positive impact for shareholders. Sustainability DNA is made up of management practices, systems and processes that shape new behaviours and decision-making capabilities. And there are numbers to back this up. In a survey of employees, 65% said that organisations should be responsible for leaving their people net better off through their employment. 74% of consumers said that ethical corporate practices and values are an important reason to choose a brand. And 81% of sustainable indices outperformed their peer benchmarks in 2020. Stakeholders are demanding more, but the report says that leadership teams that build sustainability into the DNA of their organisations are better able to deliver financial value and wider stakeholder impact. Those with the most deeply embedded sustainable management practices outperform their peers by 21% on both profitability and positive environmental and societal outcomes. Coming up next week, from 11th to 13th of October, is this year's Innovation Forum Future of Plastics conference. I'm looking forward to three days of insight and debate, hearing from experts at Mondelez, ABNBev, Unilever, Walmart, Iceland, Coca-Cola and many more. And there's still time to join us. Full details on the Innovation Forum website. And Innovation Forum's flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference returns on the 30th of November to 2nd of December. 300 plus delegates will be learning from the insights of Tesco, Dole Foods, Muzum Mass, European Commission, RSPO, Mars and many more. Full details of how to save £75 in passes are on the Innovation Forum website. Coming up now are highlights of a conversation I had with Director of the Forest Trends Ecosystem Marketplace Project, Stephen Donofrio, co-author of the new State of the Voluntary Carbon Markets 2021 report. You've just released your new report, the State of the Voluntary Carbon Markets 2021. What are the headlines from this research? Well, I mean, this has been a really incredible couple of years for the voluntary carbon market. Despite the unfortunate global circumstances related to COVID-19, we have watched this market continue to grow over the last couple of years and really just exceed expectations across the board. In 2020, we saw the market get close to $500 million, which is the highest annual value since 2012. As of August 31st of 2021, we found that market transactions have already exceeded $748 million. This is really, really important to acknowledge because while 2020 was a banner year from 2012, this means that 2021 is on track to being a market that will exceed $1 billion. And this is going to put 2021 as a year over any other year in terms of total market value size. It's a really just sort of exciting moment to be in with the market. There's a lot of interest. And what's really driving so much of this is the recognition of nature as a solution to tackling climate change and with a particular look at what is called Red Plus, reducing emissions from deforestation and land degradation, among other benefits to communities and ecosystems. Those projects have seen a huge increase from years prior, and it's really just for all types of projects across the board that we're just seeing a tremendous amount of interest and, and opportunity. Is that then the major driver, the fact that there's recognition of the value of these projects? And I guess also the fact that companies are now really seriously getting to grips with their, their entire emissions, scope one, two, and three. Completely. This has always been thought of as a carbon management continuum. We need to first understand where our impacts are as global economies. We need to then recognize where the opportunities are for driving emission reductions. 
And then along with that is to understand what the costs are involved with those activities. And as companies are now planning further and further into the future with more significant aspirations and commitments to drive climate neutrality or net zero, there is no doubt in many companies' minds that the long-term goal can only be achieved with short-term successes. And those short-term successes, at least in the near term here, are being widely recognized as being within the voluntary carbon market. So this rapid and very significant growth in carbon markets is driven by this awareness, this awareness that has come over the past several decades of calculating emissions to then acknowledging those sources, acknowledging the opportunities, and recognizing that we really just are never going to be able to get to Paris Agreement goals unless we take advantage of every option that we have in front of us. These more and more ambitious net zero goals, climate neutrality goals, carbon negative, there's so many different terms to wrap your heads around. There are significant opportunities for us to increase the credibility and validity of these commitments. There's no doubt about that. But we need to acknowledge that this is a very significant moment in time for the climate movement where it is no longer simply about solving climate change for climate's sake, but it's about really representing business value and business opportunity. Are there any particular sectors that you're seeing that are now really engaging in the voluntary carbon market and using them as a tool to enable them on their journey to net zero? There are a number of sectors. So it's a long list and a wide variety. But at the top of that list in just the last few years are, are companies that are consumer-facing, So consumer goods companies, consumer discretionary sector companies, those that understand that there's a public perception as a reputational hazard if they are not taking action on climate and offsets provide pathways for them to communicate about their ambitions and their efforts and their investments into this in a different way than talking about changes of fuels or building efficiencies and lighting and other things that they may have already tackled. But other companies from the energy sector are showing significant uptick in purchasing of credits. Some of those might be end users. Some of those might also have trading desks of their own. But the reality here is that the companies in the energy sector are not only purchasing credits to reduce their own footprint, they're offering more and more products to their consumers, just like they did in renewable energy credit markets years ago. And now there's also carbon credit products that they're offering to their consumers so that when their consumers are buying electricity from them, that they can then also buy carbon offsets to neutralize those emissions that are resulting from that energy. You look at aviation companies, there's an interesting shift over the last few years in terms of moving away from Red Plus credits into clean cook stoves. But without going to all the details about all these sectors, there's a, a wider recognition that as some of these big initiatives like the Voluntary Carbon Markets Initiative, the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, that terms like high integrity, high quality credits, while those terms are still really being defined that companies and speculators are joining into this to say, well, let's get in front of this. Let's buy credits that they perceive to be high quality, high integrity, and start prioritizing large purchases at higher prices for those types of credits. Do you think this is coinciding with the companies that are buying the credits? Are they decarbonizing their own operations and supply chains as much as they can alongside this? We're not seeing companies just offsetting their way to net zero, I hope. This is one of the large misperceptions that we've explored in the past in some of our reports around buyers. You know, we think of this as more or less a myth that that companies are avoiding their obligations to reduce emissions by purchasing offsets. 
The evidence from a few years ago when we, we last published a report on this showed that it was in fact more that companies who had a greater understanding and were reporting their full footprint of greenhouse gas emissions, scope one, two, and three, were the companies more likely to be offsetting emissions. And that's likely because they found that there are parts of their scopes that they just cannot address on their own. And so offsets were providing a pathway to reductions. It also found that companies were more likely to invest in offsets if they were investing in heavier, deeper investments into their own emission reduction activities. So spending more money to reduce their own emissions, that those were the companies that would be more likely to be purchasing offsets. So yeah, so I think we feel fairly confident at this point that despite this market growing to a potential 1 billion plus market in 2021, it's still just a very small percentage of what is needed to getting to the Paris Agreement goals, and companies acknowledge that. You're right. I mean, we're nowhere near the scale that the Mark Carney task force that you referenced earlier says is necessary for the global economy to get to a, a net zero position by 2050. What do you think needs for this scale to emerge? One of the first pieces was to try to establish a long-term demand signal. And that, I think, is what we've been discussing and, and is what is becoming more and more secure. So that is fundamental. Now that helps to unlock opportunities for investment, for funding. And what we are doing at Ecosystem Marketplace as a key foundation in this market is to bring transparency. Transparency in terms of what's trading, what are the prices, what are the attributes about projects that are driving different prices or different demand. That is essential in order for these markets to scale, in order for investment to really funnel into this space so that projects can have the best chances at being successful when they're in tropical forest countries or in different geographies, and even here in the United States or in Europe. We all need transparency for this globally connected, but at sometimes disaggregated market to really have opportunities to scale at, at the rate that the Carney Task Force has, has, has identified. Definitions are very important in all of this. So just go through some of the terms and useful to define. What's the difference between carbon removal and carbon reduction? And are both routes important? This is, this is an interesting debate. It's a relatively new debate of terminology, but the foundation is based on project types that have been around for a long, long time. So a removal is characterized by the creation of a carbon sink that removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. That could be natural type of projects, such as tree planting programs, afforestation, reforestation, but it could also be industrial. So carbon capture and storage and geological formations. And these have different price points, very, very different price points for implementation. While we look at these categories, a removal project that is planting trees has a very different price point than a removal project that is pulling carbon dioxide out of the air or out of a, an energy system and funneling that underground or into some sort of industrial operation. A carbon reduction is characterized by reducing emissions that would have been emitted otherwise. So a business's usual scenario is producing X amount of emissions. How do we reduce that? So that could be energy efficiency. That could be fuel switching. That's also renewable energy. Projects that are changing the way we operate currently to reduce the amount of emissions that are being produced. Both reductions and removals are essential to addressing climate change, are essential project types. While they might garner different prices, they might have different buyers, this is really to be left for the market to decide what they want to purchase, what they want to develop, where the opportunities exist in different geographies, different markets. Because as we know, price points of project development in one country 
even within one country in different jurisdictions, different locations, are very different in other parts of the world. So we can't expect that a renewable energy project to be developed in the United States, for example, is the same cost point as renewable energy project in India or China or elsewhere in the world. So we have to be open-minded to the different types of projects and the markets that they exist within, the geographies they exist within, and the, the climate benefits that they provide. As I understand it, certain renewable energy projects are no longer attract verified carbon credits, isn't that right? That's right, yes. The shift over the last couple of years has been for the standards to take a moment and reevaluate one of the key components of what makes an offset an offset for renewable energy projects, and that's additionality. Financial additionality is an essential point for offsets and what distinguishes offsets in many ways from renewable energy credits and renewable portfolio standards or other types of standards and markets. What they did the last few years very simply is said that the cost effectiveness of these projects in, in developed economies is now much higher. So we can't really agree that there's financial additionality for developed economies to continue to develop renewable energy projects. But for LDCs and emerging economies, there's still opportunity to develop new projects there. Those that exist currently in developed economies can continue to produce credits, but we're not accepting any new projects to be registered. Another set of definitions. What's the difference between an issued carbon credit and a retired carbon credit? The process is fairly consistent across the different standards from when you have an idea for a project and you develop your project design documents and submit your proposal and then it goes through the validation process. You ultimately will then be issued credits for a project that you've registered with a standard. Issued means that it exists. It's now available for trading. The project developer has an account, a registry account with the standard. They have something tangible, even if they can't actually touch it, but it's a tangible, serialized, issued representation of a metric ton of carbon dioxide. That can be sold and sold and sold. Eventually, when we consider issued credits to be used or consumed, that's when we consider them to be retired. The key piece here is that it has to be retired from the registry account of the buyer or of an account holder and taken out of circulation so that it no longer can be traded. So this is basically when the carbon reduction has happened and the credit against that then has to be retired. That's right. Yeah. So just to clarify, when the credits are issued and we call it an actual carbon credit that's been issued by a registry that's sitting in a registry account issued by a standard, that means that the reduction or the avoidance has occurred and it has been verified by a third party. And then when it's retired, those credits are removed from circulation so they can no longer can be sold by any counterparties. Thinking forwards then, as the carbon markets scale, what's the further innovation that you think is going to be necessary from the standard setters to ensure credibility so that we can all be certain that targets are being met and being seen to be met? This is important for two sides of the coin. One is for existing projects and standards and methodologies that currently exist. How do we continue to improve the rules just like we've seen with renewable energy projects? How do we continue to evolve as a market to ensure that the requirements are being met on a very fundamental basis? And also for those existing projects, methodologies, standards, that we're taking into account ways to improve the way in which projects are implemented and that we can provide greater assurances into the climate benefits, as well as more and more co-benefit and sustainable development goal certifications emerge, that those can be more easily and cost-effectively quantified and verified 
so that there are greater assurances that those elements that are part of many carbon offset projects can be assured to those buyers. And that could be anything from for forestry projects, could be improving and integrating greatest and latest technologies for remote sensing or remote monitoring of projects and what is called monitoring, reporting, and verification, MRV. This is like a really kind of fundamental point around forestry is how do we actually know that these projects exist in the first place? How do we know that they're creating the benefits, that the trees are still there, that the forests have not been burned down, the deforestation rates that have been claimed are actual here? These types of technologies that are now more cost-effective today than 10 years ago or even five years ago, the costs of being able to monitor from afar are drastically improving. So that's one opportunity. The second would be for these new project types and these new standards that are being developed across the board that are maybe more industrial, that are around carbon removals through industrial large technology that I referred to before. As that is happening, we're able to have, we're able to develop the technologies that are going to be required to actually achieve those goals. The technology in many cases is not available for us today. I mean, it may be available in some very industrial or government scale, but that's not very cost effective when we're seeing global average prices of around $4, $5 a ton. When we think about those products that would likely require $100 plus a ton in order to be successful in the voluntary market, that there needs to be a, a way that we are transitioning from the current form of the voluntary market to the future form with new types of technologies, new types of projects. So there's a lot more that needs to be developed on the technology side. This is all happening. I don't think anybody's shying away from these challenges, but more just recognizing that they exist and recognizing that we've got to chart the course of getting there. Well, it's certainly a fascinating area. And as you say, one that does seem set to grow. But for now, Stephen Donofrio from Forest Trends Ecosystem Marketplace. Thanks very much for sharing your insight. Thank you so much, Ian. Don't forget to sign up for the Plastics Conference coming next week. Hope you can join us. And go to the Innovation Forum website for more information on that and for the usual analysis and interviews. Look out for a new piece of analysis into the state of the palm oil sector and why progress has been so hard to achieve. Plus, if you haven't seen it yet, do check out the recording of the webinar from the Kasigao Corridor Red Plus project in Kenya that we recorded last week. I was honoured to speak with community leaders and project managers on the ground. That's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next week, goodbye.